Welcome to the Humble Hoof Podcast. My name is Alicia Harlov. This is a podcast for both horse owners and hoof care professionals, offering discussions into various philosophies on the health of the hoof and soundness of your horse. Please check us out on Facebook or at thehumblehoof.com. Previously on the Humble Hoof Podcast. I'm Pete Rainey, and I am a farrier that specializes in the rehabilitation of hoof problems. I really feel like that when I'm working on a horse, you know, I'm helping that horse. But if I help a person, I may help hundreds of horses. My name is Candace Perino, and I am a professional hoof trimmer for Central Florida currently. I actually have chosen this because of my gelding and how Pete Ramey was very influential in all of the rehab work. Um, all of his DVDs, his books, um, especially his clinic, it really helped me to rehab him and just continue to dig deeper. Uh, Pete was really great. Um, all his work, you know, whether it be online with his Facebook group or, you know, his book, it was very influential. For episode two with Pete, I decided to get more into the technical stuff that hoof care providers can use as tips and tricks in their own business. Pete was really gracious in answering my questions and going into detail about ways that he works with different situations and different pathology. I do want to, you know, change gears a little bit and uh, talk a little bit more about the technical side of things, <laughs> you know, uh, more about what you do and how you help maybe specific cases, if you're willing to share that or have a little bit more time. Sure. Um, so you mentioned the study that you did with Dr. Taylor uh, with the 14 obese laminated courses. And um, can you tell us a little bit more about that study specifically and you know what you did with it what the method was how you approached it they dr taylor and um, several other uh, of the veterinary professors there evaluated each of these horses uh, prior to to us starting they took um, radiographs and evaluated the movement and rated them on the lameness scale and you know, then we started working on the horses and, and it was it was kind of whole package um, diet changes and the trimming and booting and a little bit of um, uh, equicast and, and that we were doing on these horses, just whatever was needed. The, um, the protocol is listed in the study. So, we, you know, we had to come up with a protocol for this to what we were doing so that the study is repeatable. So then we worked on the horses for about a year and, and then they repeated the evaluation process. And then the, the number crunching people crunched the numbers and came up with the results, which were um, big changes in, in uh, you know, reversing the rotation. There were several of the horses that showed uh, distal descent reversal, although statistically, I was a little disappointed by that. Statist statistically, across the study, they didn't show a distal descent reversal, but then there were isolated, you know, cases there, isolated feet that did. And then, you know, the lameness scale, all of the horses um, were, were restored to, um, to comfort soundness, most of them to work, and, and so on. So that was it. Um, I'm Deborah Taylor. I'm a veterinarian um, who focuses on hoof care and hoof rehab. You know, leading into the study that we did, did um, the other problem that I guess, or the tunnel vision that I had prior to meeting Pete was that I was completely focused on the dorsal hoof wall. And, and I thought that the only way you could help the horse was to somehow fix the pathology of the dorsal wall and that that was gonna be the answer to all the problems the horse had. And you know, so all of the focus that you get from veterinary medicine and training is about the rotation of the dorsal wall, whether the bones rotated away or the wall's been displaced upward. The whole focus is on the front of the foot with, with traditional laminitis, uh, description of the disease and management of disease and so it was you know Pete the thing that's so cool about Pete is that he 
He doesn't tell you what you need to be focused on. He waits for you to discover it yourself. And so he's just very patient and he would he would just keep showing me how to work with the horse and how he was going to trim the horse and boot the horse for comfort and how comfort was so important that you couldn't just leave the horse uncomfortable and in the way he would just slowly ask the horse's hoof for change so that the horse never perceived pain it would always be more comfortable when he left it however he left it instead of this weird conception that people have is let him tough it out which is totally not what pete's about so as he was doing all that and i was just focusing on the front of the foot front of the foot front of the foot and then it took me a long time to finally realize that the palmar foot was changing i know when people start studying your approach um it might seem overwhelming with how many changes you're asking from them uh what about people who just can't can't make all those changes well when you look at, at the, all the different things that affect hoof growth and hoof quality and hoof form and ultimately uh, hoof comfort and usability, uh, you know, we're talking about the footfalls, the way that foot hits the ground is a big factor. Um, the mileage that foot goes is a big factor. Uh, there's so much to you know, how much the horse is exercising, how, how much it goes that, you know, to a point, um, you know, the, the more movement, the better, um, the terrain the horse is on is a huge factor. And of course the trim carbohydrate overload is a big part of it. Uh, that's causing a lot of problems. And so stopping the carbohydrate overload is going to, is going to reverse a lot of these problems. The rest of the nutrition profile, and all that, plus the genetics of the horse, you know, we don't talk about that a lot, really, because there's nothing we can do about it. But it's certainly true that some horses are simply more blessed than others as far as their feet. Um, we also have to take into consideration the current pathology. You know, pathology happens. And so when you have permanent conditions that have happened to a horse, then, then, you know, we can improve the situation, but, but often only so far. So we've got all these factors that, that may be negatively affecting um, that hoof. You hit an owner with all that at the same time, and, and their, their eyes glaze over really quickly. But if you ignore any of those, you're just lying to yourself, and you're, you're failing the horse. But I think to answer your question, when horse owners come in and they're feeling overwhelmed by all these changes that need to be made, I look at this whole thing like pulling straws off the camel's back. And that if you can start to make some changes, some improvements, um, in a little bit of time, what you can as you can. The start is understanding the problems and then start you know, improving in the areas that you can. Um, a good example is my beginning into this, my personal, you know, 30-ish horses that I first did, did this experiment on. I had the terrain. I made ideal terrain for the horses, and, and uh, I maintained it. I worked every day and making sure their feet were on the terrain that matched their riding environment, and they had the mileage. They they were turned out in a big herd. Um, they were in several big herds and and uh, getting ridden a lot. So that was a plus to them. Um, and I wasn't carb overloading them. Um, now, the footfalls, looking back at my old pictures, some of my horses were loading correctly and some of them were, um, uh, were compensating, landing on their toes. My trim, uh, I was making mistakes. Um, and the biggest one, again, was, was not prioritizing that movement. Um, the nutrition profile I was doing wrong. Uh, I was throwing a brown mineral block out there to a herd of horses, and that was my, my um, supplement program. But I, I had the mileage in place, and I had the terrain in place, and a decent trim, and I wasn't carb overloading. So the fact that, that I was missing several other key elements um, I had a herd full of very sound horses that were working for a living barefoot, and, and, it, and it worked. And most of those were rehab cases. Wow. So I think that's the important thing to, to get across to people is 
is that we can't set up a natural environment. We can't feed horses perfectly. It, it simply doesn't exist. So, so we do the best that we can. My name is Maya Chaput. Uh, I'm a professional hoof care practitioner, uh, certified with the PHCP, and I've been trimming for about six years professionally. I think one of my favorite quotes uh, that Pete said was that there's no Pete Ramey method, um, and if there is one, he doesn't follow it. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's interesting because a lot of the, there's a lot of kind of what I call cookie cutter uh, trimming methods out there that say we have to adhere to a certain specific proportion or measurement and that it's sort of set as an absolute truth. And I really believe in the philosophy that if something isn't working, you shouldn't keep doing it. You have to try something different. Um, and I think Pete really helped us see that. He's, he sort of revolutionized uh, thinking away from two-dimensional trimming methods and really getting us to envision where is the bony column sitting inside the hoof capsule and what does the foot look like in three dimensions? You know, not just trimming necessarily to a specific proportion, but looking at how is the foot at that given moment? Is it is it ready to take the weight um, with a perfectly balanced trim? Or do we have to consider that certain tissues are weaker than others and how to prioritize our trimming decisions based on that? Uh, so you've had good success with reversing distal descent. Uh, can you talk a little about that? The very, very short version of it is, let's talk about why it gets that way to begin with. The lamina were never really intended to permanently suspend the horse's weight off the ground. The, the vertical support is supposed to be, you know, get, the lamina are supposed to be getting assistance. Um, from through the sole, through the bars, through the frog, you know, from the ground, so that there is there should be in a healthy situation a load sharing roles between all these structures. Most distal descent cases, and that is where the coffin bone is lower in the hoof capsule than it should be, or more accurately, the coronet has migrated up the limb, has migrated proximally. Um, what causes that is forcing a horse to, to walk only on its hoof walls and lifting the sole off the ground. So, and healthy lamina are strong enough for that a little bit. You know, if, uh, if a horse with healthy lamina and a deeply concaved healthy sole steps onto a concrete surface, then there is no sole support. Okay, but if the lamina are healthy, you know, he's not going to drop through the hoof capsule uh, because he stepped over, because he walked across the asphalt road. But, you know, the system, healthy lamina are strong enough to take that a little bit. Um, but if the lamina are unhealthy, and this is where the nutritional parts come in, the, um, the carbohydrate overload, um, mineral deficiency or imbalance, and some other problems that can weaken the lamina, then, then there's nothing stopping the, the coffin bone, the, the whole horse from just dropping down through the hoof capsule. So the cause of it, generally speaking, is too much load on the walls, not enough load on the sole, uh, to a lesser extent, the bars and frogs as well. Times, nutritional problems that also weaken the lamina. So reversing it is reversing those factors. Um, number one, fixing the diet to a point that, that we have stronger lamina. And number two, starting to relieve pressure on the walls so that the, the coronet can migrate back down to its proper position uh, relative to the bone. Now, I have to say that's the oversimplified version. The complicated version comes from the protection that we have to provide along the way i said it's not natural for 
the sole to be, you know, suspended off the ground so the horse is hanging upside down by the lamina. But it's also not natural for a horse to be, for a horse to be standing on its sole with no help from the hoof wall. And honestly, standing on its sole without help or with limited help from the hoof wall is critical to reversing distal descent. So, in other words, what we're having to do to reverse that is it isn't a natural and a dangerous thing to do in itself. Because now we're putting too much pressure on the solar corium. And that's the live stuff between the sole and the bone. So the steps we take for that are, number one, being conservative with this, uh, uh, with, with trying to reverse distal descent uh, before you've built a thick sole. Um, so you'll see me starting off not even trying to reverse a distal descent case while my sole is thin. As I build more sole, you'll see me increasing my aggression with trying to reverse the distal descent. The next thing is just simply recognizing that we're putting in a natural load on the sole and we're trying to do that on the solar corium to be specific and still taking steps to protect that. And we're going to do that, you know, if the horse is barefoot, or I'll flip it the other way. If a horse has, you know, soft, good yielding terrain that he's always on, we can do a lot of these barefoot. Um, if he also has, you know, at least, you know, eight millimeters of sole thickness, but if we have a thinner sole and, um, or, and, or we are, um, we have some hard terrain or some rocky terrain in the environment, then we have to use hoof protection. Uh, to protect the sole, uh, you, you, you have a really specific methods that you can use and some you can't use because the solar corium likes pressure. It's pressure on the solar corium is natural. Supporting the horse by the solar corium is natural. But that pressure has to have a release Every time the foot is in flight, anytime the foot is unloaded, so that when the foot is loaded, um, that we have pressure on the solar corium, but when the foot is unloaded, that, pre that pressure is 100% released. And that's why a lot of, like say, you know, horseshoers all know that, that you can't shoe with sole pressure. And, but, and you know, if you shoe with sole pressure, bad things happen. So um, that leads them a lot of times to think that the soul can't bear weight. But actually, the soul doesn't mind the, the pressure. It's the pressure without release that when you, when with most shoeing, with, with most shoeing methods, that pressure, if you shoe with soul pressure, that pressure is clamped on. So it doesn't fully release when the, um, when the hoof is in flight. And so... You take, and really, I mean, I'm a boot guy. The best one, the best way that you can protect the sole and still be sure that you allow that release of pressure when the hoof is in flight is, is in a boot with a pad. And that way you're protecting the solar corium from, you know, pinpoint impacts and spreading the load all the way across the sole, the solar corium, just the way a healthy sole would. But then you're also, you know, fully releasing that pressure when the hoof is in flight, you know, but there's other ways you can do it simply with a tape on pad. Um, uh, I've, 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 I've worked hard at developing a fixed shoeing method that you can do that. Um, and uh, I, I do that with the um, glue-on glove shells. And, and uh, you know, but just whatever you're doing, I'm, uh, I'm not selling any products here. It's um, whatever you're doing, if you're, if you're loading the sole, and you should be, it's healthy for the, for the hoof to do, that you have to be making sure that you're getting a release of that pressure when the hoof is in flight. And you mentioned um, how you're careful when their soles are thinner. So you wait until you build more sole depth uh, in order to let those horses be barefoot in their environment. So what have you seen to be the most effective for building that sole depth? Um, the most effective way method to build sole thickness? Yes. Really, it's the whole package. Um uh, everything that I do, everything that I try to do. Um, number one 
it's getting the correct movement. If you have a horse that's loading its toes excessively or landing toe first, you will not build adequate sole thickness at the toe. Okay. Um, if you have lamellar separation, if you if you don't have perfect lamellar separation all the way down um, the bone, you won't build adequate sole thickness at the toe. And you virtually can't grow well-connected lamina if the horse is loading toe first. So there again, getting that impact correct and getting the footfalls and the movement correct um, is critical to that for the, both the short haul of not wearing away the sole and the long haul of growing in a well-connected wall to protect the sole. Okay, so it's it's the movement first but then also the nutritional aspect of it um critical to growing a healthy soul is 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 getting the diet right um uh, as far as more mechanical things using boot turnout for all or part of your turnout depending on the movement ensuring that the horse is moving correctly in the turnout environment um or maybe doing maybe you know in a lot of cases in most cases, we're doing barefoot turnout, but then may need to do booted riding. That he may move fine um, and move correctly in his turnout environment barefoot. But then, when you add the way of the rider, when you move over to the riding environment, which may be more harsh, that now he's starting to compensate and cause us to chase our tail. So, so prioritizing booted booting when needing is a big part of it. Um, I'm a big fan of of, um, of hoof armor, which is a product that that we put on the soles to basically as long as it's there, it it erases all surface wear. So um, so that makes it much sooner that that we'll build uh, uh, an adequate sole thickness. And um, I like um, Equicast for for this as well. You can build sole thickness in in any shoe uh, or with boot turnout because ba but basically and I, I don't really fully understand the mechanics behind it but when you build sole um, by straight protection it tend it t what you build tends to be just exfoliating sole that that didn't exfoliate it's just crud and so if you try to go back barefoot if you try to use that sole it just falls off and and so it's really from what i found specifically the hoof armor and the hoof cast that and the only way i can relate it is i think that, that i think that maybe to grow healthy good thick sole that's that's properly calloused and and is right that it requires stimulation and I think that maybe through the cast and through the hoof armor that the soul can get that stimulation that it needs to, to grow correctly while also eliminating the any surface wear. And and so those are those are my two favorite mechanical soul builders. You know, with Pete Rainey, he was able to teach me, not even firsthand, which I'm a very visual person and tactile, so um, he was able to put it in layman's terms, how to read sole depth, how to measure it, um, where certain parts of the sole are very thin, so that was very, that was very important for me, especially with uh, my first horse, my personal horse, and rehabbing him, and it's basically been able to I guess accelerate my learning and I'm able to help more uh, people with their horses because I'm running into a lot of really thin sold horses and you know I'm able to make them more comfortable quite easily because of Pete and the way that he's you know able to articulate through his books his DVDs and his clinics it's really great. Um, one of my other quotes that I really love that came from Pete was to leave the soul ugly with an extra layer of protection. Um, and his analogy was that, um, you know, you could try walking across sharp rocks barefoot and see how sensitive your feet are and then put on a pair of socks and do it again. You might be surprised how much protection that just a, a pair of socks gives you against the rock. And you mentioned glue-ons a few times, 
Uh, so when do you choose to use gluons? Generally speaking, I try to avoid them. My favorite way to do it is is um, if the if the horse is 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 lame or compensating in the turnout environment, then as I've hopefully gotten across, he can he can he can be lame and he can compensate for a long time, and that movement is keeping the hooves from becoming healthier. Very often you can do just two weeks, just three weeks of boot turnout. And if that gives them correct movement, then that two or three weeks will grow better structure good enough so the horse can then be, at least in this turnout environment, moving correctly while barefoot. And my favorite way to do it is this way. But some horse owners can't do boot turnouts boot turnout is is uh uh is labor intensive or at least you know once a day you need to take the boots off clean the foot clean the boots dry everything out let the horse be barefoot and dry shavings or pea gravel just whatever's appropriate for whatever's wrong with the horse um and then go back on with the boots and a lot of horse owners just simply can't do that but then there's also, um, if somebody comes to me with, with a rotation, you know, with a founder horse or an avicular case, I have no problem demanding two or three weeks of good boot turnout out of them. But some problems we can't fix. Some problems, no matter what we do, they're just going to be there. Um, uh, just the pathology is there and there's nothing anything anybody can do about it. And some problems we can fix, but it's going to take three years. So for those, I think asking for asking for two or three years of boot turnout or boot turnout forever is unreasonable. Um, I won't try to demand that of a client. Um, that if I see one of those two things, I'll I'll immediately you know start wanting to do the gluons. Now some horse owners may still choose to use the boot turnout because it's it's a lot cheaper and but it's not something I'll demand. So that's the main category of horses that that I you know elect to do to do gluons with. Um, and 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 of course if there's something I can do with the gluing um, that I can accomplish in a boot, um, uh, I'm going to immediately do it. And you know that's about it for riding, shoeing, riding horses is really not my business. I mean it's it's uh, um, I'm not up jumping screaming about it against it, but I really to my core think that barefoot turnout you know assuming the foot's healthy enough for it that barefoot turnout and booted riding are really the safest best modality that 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 we could do for horses i can accept other systems and i can see horses that need other things but in the greater vast majority of horses i think that that barefoot turnout and booted riding is should be our standard for that reason you know i i don't i don't shoe a lot of riding horses um right now i'm shoeing some endurance horses um their the shoes are put on for a race and then and then you know pulled off soon after i've certainly got no problem with it i like it you know but but it's not the the primary thing that i do and really i just started doing it to get better at gluing to test myself um if you want to know the truth that's why i'm doing those clients and have you been able to um test those tape on applications yet <laughs> uh, well depending on when someone's listening to this podcast you, you you probably should get the update but i'll give you the skinny the scoop right now yeah. um and on the current but this is a current test that i'm doing about over a hundred dollars worth of different tapes um and um I guess I should back up. This worked for years with the Mueller's athletic tape, but then Mueller's changed their tape. And so now I'm looking for a replacement. But um, and I guess we should back up for, for the people that are um, that don't know what in the world we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. the, the, this trying to work out a tape on application is, um, is not going to be able to replace booting or gluing. It's very temporary at best, but sometimes we need that. Sometimes we need to shoe a horse just for a couple of days, 
whether it's a dressage show that won't allow um, anything above the hairline um, or or I use them as medicine boots where I'm needing access. And, and it's like, say, if we have a, an injury um, um, up on the bulbs or something, and so no kind of boot gator will go on it and we're needing to protect. So there's, there's uh, or maybe, you know, some people do this for trail riding. Um, for just going for a ride and not leaving their horse shot over, uh, over time. And so it has that temporary can be an advantage, but also unlike gluing, um, it's very easy to reuse the same shoe over and over and over again. And the, um, the, the other reason for this is to carry a roll of that tape with you in case you ripped a gator, you know, in the middle of nowhere that you could put tape on the foot, put the boot on without a gator and get you, get you back home. Um, um, or I also use it for making a bomb proof booting job. And this is with the easy boot gloves. And I do this with, with, with endurance riders and, and high mileage trail riders that I want them to train without the tape because I want to debug the boot fit. Now I want to have that boot that is performing without the tape. And it's not twisting, it's not falling off, it's working correctly. So, um, but then on race day or on that big group trail ride, you know, whatever it is that day that you just want to make absolutely sure that you don't have any booting issues, that then you go ahead and take that extra 30 seconds, throw the tape on before you boot. And that creates, you know, sort of a, a you know, a, a, a bomb proof booting job. And so, you know, those are the uses of it. And so I'm really, um, I delayed it. I should have done this a year ago, but it's really important to me to find that Mueller's replacement. It's a useful tool to have in your bag of tricks. I was very excited about double-sided tape, and that's been my current, uh, uh, I've I've sort of been disappointed with the double-sided tape. I tried both um, the the Scotch uh, 3M uh, 30 pound double-sided tape and i've tested the gorilla 30 pound and 15 pound the only reason i never tried this years ago was i didn't think i would be able to get a boot on with double-sided tape on it and it turns out that i can once i tried it i can do it um but i think that it's right now i think it's not going to be the it um I was so excited about it. I haven't told anyone this yet, but my first test, because um, I had put double-sided tape on the cadaver and just had a very hard time getting it off, uh, get, getting the shoe off. And so I was really excited. I was so excited that my first test with the, um, with the double-sided tape was, was on a, a glue-on glove shell that I had cut the back out of. And which we've never done. We've always done the, the tape on applications with the, with the back of the boot left in them. Uh, but I was so excited. I said, I'm going to, my, as my first test, I'm going to do the most extreme. And, and it didn't work. Actually, the, um, <laughs> I, I don't know why the, um, the, um, the gorilla 15 pound is stickier than than either of the 30 pound tapes it actually seems to work better with the back cut out of it my uh it was the scotch 30 pound tape it stayed on there for for seven or eight hours and um and the um the other side came off in the night sometimes stayed on at least 12 14 hours and and the other side came off and so i went back and this was yesterday i think or day before but did it with the back in them, and I used the um, Gorilla Thirty Pound on one foot, and the super sticky goat tape on the other foot, and those are still on. Oh. And so I'm gonna leave them on for three days, and then go pull them off and 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 see how hard they are to come off. But my overall impression that the double sided tape may work, but it's very difficult. It doesn't like the, um, you know, the dust, the oil from your fingers. When you start handling it and trying to put it on a horse, very quickly it loses all of its sticky. Oh. And, and that's why it worked better at my dining room table with a cadaver 
then then it worked um then it worked out in the field that i think that you could do really well with the double-sided tape but it would take the same prep and attention to detail about getting dust involved and oils involved and prepping the foot that i think the double-sided tape would work a lot better um if you did that I intentionally didn't do it that way because I wanted this to be doable easier. You know, then the, it's one of the advantages of, of doing a tape on is that, that it'll be easier for people to do, easier to learn uh, than gluing. And I tried it both putting the double-sided tape on the hoof and putting the double-sided tape on different applications, putting it in the in the shoe and then putting the shoe on. And with both ways... It's really easy to roll the tape off as you're putting the shoe on and kind of making a mess of it. And I'm ending up either way with too much tape piled up at the toe that, that as I put the boot on, um, I'm, I'm shoving extra tape around up into the front of the boot. And so, like I say, it, it's something that can work, but the beauty of the old method of just wrapping tape on the foot and hammering the boot on um you didn't have to prep you didn't have to really be that clean you know all that kind of stuff uh, i've sort of left the the excitement for the double-sided tape and now i want to find the tape that works like the old mules used to that we can just wrap it on and go yeah, I had remembered reading that in your article, and had tried it actually just with the casting, and um, got the new Mueller's, and I was like, well, this doesn't really seem like it is really, you know, effective. <laughs> the cast, like, fell off the next day, because I hadn't used glue. So I was like, I think maybe I'm doing it wrong. If Pete says that it works, it must work. <laughs> so <laughs> It used to work. <laughs> I mean, you know... Um listen yeah. you know listen to meg she kept she kept a pair on for two weeks um <laughs> yeah. on a on a draft horse that was in competition doing water crossings you know and and you know i've left i've had them stay on you know for a week you know many times it, it, it used to work and i'm gonna make it work again a lot of times i see people posting on social media about pathology they notice even as owners wall cracks being the biggest one. Everyone wants to know how they can make the horse's foot look better. As hoof care providers, we know we are looking for the horse's foot to grow down healthier. Pete talks about how his approach addresses these visual hoof health issues that are a symptom or a sign of something else going on, whether it's a diet or metabolic issue, etc. And I actually just have a few more questions. Um, so obviously you see all different kinds of pathology. Um, so what is your, your method for treating wall cracks? Uh, wall cracks. Once again, it's the whole package. And actually I'll talk about wall cracks and white line disease at the same time. Both of them are products of wall flare of the hoof walls becoming separated from the hoof. Like for white line disease, I'm not discounting the effects of fungus and bacteria eating away at the tissue. That's real. The thing of it is, is fungus and bacteria doesn't tend to really bother healthy hooves. In fact, and some people think this is really left field, but I think that fungus and bacteria eating away at the hooves may be a natural part of natural exfoliation. It may actually be needed by horses certainly if they were existing without without routine farrier care but generally speaking there has to be a separation present first that then the and it's mostly fungi in my mind that, that then but but there are bacterial factors too that then the fungi gets up in there and then starts eating away and a lot of times that does have to be treated. So I'm not discounting bacteria and fungus, but I'm just saying that it's generally secondary. So you can soak in this, you can treat with this, and almost always it fails to work. It fails to go away. And then with wall cracks, you know, same thing. If you Most of the time when you have a wall crack, you have either imbalanced loading where the horse is either side loading or toe loading and or you have wall flare you have wall separation 
And so you can lace that scene together. You can cast it together. You can do all these different things. And I'm not discounting those. Sometimes they're needed. But ultimately, as long as you have flare, as long as you have lamellar separation, as long as you have incorrect loading, that crack's going to come back uh, or you're going to fail to grow it out. Therefore, everything that we've talked about and a lot of things we haven't talked about yet, that that whole package of getting the movement right, getting the trim right, getting the trim cycle frequent enough that you're not overgrowing and flaring between trims. The the diet, did I say that yet? Uh, the, and, and it's two forks of carbohydrate overload and and the other fork, everything else uh, the, that all have to come together. Um, now, can you grow out a wall crack without all this? Yes. Some horses have wall cracks or white line disease or lamellar separation. Sometimes your trim is enough. And I've done it um, that I can go in on these cases, get absolutely no other changes and just my magical trim or maybe just the fact that now the horse is getting trimmed every four weeks instead of every four months, you know, poof, it's all you need to grow that out and grow well-connected walls. But other times, you know, we can't even turn these cases until we've made this, you know, till we've done the antimicrobial soaking, till we've, till we've um, fixed the diet, you know, all these kind of things. And so um, the, um, the way I've changed is I've gotten um, older and grouchier is that I lost all stomach for waiting around to see if we're going to need to make other changes besides just the trimming that the, I, I really, really prefer and I'm pretty insistent on getting at least a lot of them made right from the start. Yeah. And I, I do have one more question. No, it's very general question. Um, do you have any advice for a horse owner or a professional struggling with a difficult case right now? Think. And I know that's a poor answer, but actually it's not. Um, I like to say there's no such thing as a good habit. The, the, and what that means is that if you, if you have something that, that you always do, and maybe if you have something that you never do, um, you're probably going to be hurting some horse somewhere. When you go in on a problem case, you need to, to be sure that no aspect of what you're doing is in autopilot mode, that you are really thinking that through, that you're paying attention to the movement, that you're watching that post-trim movement. Um, if the post-trim movement isn't up to snuff, then start, you know, playing with boots, pads, you know, how, how can I get that horse moving correctly right now? Now, can I always do it? Absolutely not. But I'm always trying. But then also, you know, asking the client throughout, you know, how the horse is moving throughout the trim cycle and then reading the wear pattern on the foot. And we haven't talked about that yet, but I can tell, I can look, and, and I'm not alone. A lot of, you know, most professionals can, but I can tell more about how a horse has been moving uh, by looking at the wear pattern of the foot than I can trying to watch a horse move. In a way, that's, that's a lot more accurate because when you watch a horse move, you're seeing how he moves right now on the terrain you're choosing to lead the horse on. Whereas when you're looking at the wear pattern, you're looking at the average movement over the course of the trim cycle on all of the terrain the horse has been on. So in a way, I put more stock in the wear pattern myself than, than I do in watching the horse move. But both of those are important, watching the horse move and reading the wear pattern, well, all three, and, and continually asking the client, you know, how the horse is moving and all that and 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 you know but prioritizing um the way the horse moves and that also opens up a lot of avenues that maybe there's something through body work through stretching you know uh through through different exercises you can do with a horse that will also it's not all just at the foot you know, they will also help the horse move correctly. You know, how the horse is ridden, trained, uh, the tack, dental issues. This this is huge. All the things, once you start to think and once you start to prioritize the, the comfort and the movement of the horse, 
then that opens up the door to all sorts of other things that you might do to improve the way the horse is moving. And if you improve the way the horse is moving, then with a big butt, and I, remind me to come back to the big butt. If you if you improve the way the horse is moving, then you will grow a better foot. You will move that horse, you know, towards that hoof towards better health and the rest of the horse too. Also, I didn't even know the Palmar foot had any significance until I met Pete, honestly. I mean, I remember one of the first talks that uh, I listened to him give. I brought him into the vet school and he, he and I became, and he was talking to my vet students and and he said, uh, and me, and he said, the coffin bone is the foundation for the front of the foot. And I'm sitting there thinking, yeah. And then he said, you know, the digital cushion is the foundation for the back half of the foot. And I went, what? It is? Like, I've never even heard this, you know, description of the digital cushion as being the foundation for the back of the foot. So he opened my mind to the importance of the whole back half of the foot. And, and then we went and, and you know there's some stuff we didn't publish that we did together that's really cool stuff we we went through the anatomy freezers at Auburn and he found um, what he considered a healthy foot and what the point of this was was if the digital cushion is the back half of the foot let's see if we can um, image it in a way that's never been imaged before and so we did MRIs on healthy and unhealthy hooves and hooves that had big digital cushions and moderate and small and narrow digital cushions and so we had these 3D images of all these hooves of different sizes and what we actually were able to prove with that with a little study that a kid named Adam Cooner helped us with and and um, Ray Wilhite who's an anatomist was that the digital cushion in that healthy foot that Pete picked was uh, I think it was 159% the volume of the bone of that foot. Where other feet that had the, the weak heels, the digital cushion was like a one-to-one -one ratio or, or smaller than the bone. So it truly is the back half. It's actually more than the back half. It's bigger than half if it's healthy. And so um, that, you know, is a really huge lesson that Pete taught me. Um, and he's just so patient, you know, and when I would do things wrong, he wouldn't ever correct me in front of the students. He would always wait until we were alone somewhere and he would take me out in the parking lot and, and gently break it to me that some of the stuff I was doing was not helpful, <laughs> you know. Um, so great lessons from him. Another great lesson he gave me was um, he taught me that the frog is fickle and that the frog didn't appreciate all the impression material that I was shoving in it that was a firm density, often a firm density and not a soft density. And I was shocked by that. I thought that every frog wanted me to shove all this impression material in it. But that that lesson has served me really well. Once I learned that the frog was fickle and, and quit just shoving what I thought was good into the frog, um, I think I've helped a lot of horses, more horses since I learned that lesson from him. Um, but anyway, yeah. Yeah, he's completely opened, opened my eyes and, you know, changed the way I look at everything in the hoof, really. So you asked me to remind you of that big exception or the big but about making horses move better after a trim. What was that? The big but is that that is my top priority, how I make the horse move. But you have to make sure that what you do to accomplish that is not also causing problems. Easy example of that is if a horse is having pain through the sole, uh, in other words, the sole corium is hurting, is overexposed um, uh, or inflamed, the quickest, easiest, most absolutely sure way to fix that and to, to, to make that horse feel better is to lift that sole off the ground. But again, we already talked about that. When you lift the sole off the ground, now the horse is hanging from the lamina. Now, most horses whose sole hurts, unless it's simply because somebody cut the sole off, most horses with painful soles have had lamellar failure already to some extent or another they go hand in hand and so when you lift the sole off the ground particularly if the lamina are compromised then 
the horse is just going to drop through the hoof capsule to the ground. And that's why 10 millimeter, 15 millimeter, 20 millimeter CEs are so common is because this trick to making them feel better of lifting their sole off the ground is so common. And they just, they just drop to the ground anyway. Now you've got two problems or well, more than that. So we can't do that. That's off the table. The same thing if we're talking about pain at the back of the foot, um, you know, horse, the horse's frog is hurting or actually the underlying tissue is hurting. The quickest, easiest way to make that horse feel better is to wedge the foot up, get that frog up off the ground. But when you do that, you, the, the tissue underneath falls further and further out of function and, and until it doesn't work anymore until now, you know, even wedged, they don't feel better, but it does a very good immediate feel good. But then in the long haul, you're causing more problems. You're causing more pathology. So again, that's off the table. So you have to, to, to think at the same time about how you can make that horse feel better while at the same time thinking about how you can do so without without causing the the real problems to be worse or causing some other pathology and and that's the challenge and that's what keeps me still after 25 years still on a vertical learning curve myself yeah and as i sit here listening to you i'm just so appreciative of your experiences, you know, and your knowledge and uh, your willingness to share it with us and, and talk to me. I, you know, I'm really thankful that you're, you're willing to hop on this call and do an interview. <laughs> oh, I was happy to. I've enjoyed it. Oh, good. <laughs> and thank you so much for, um, you know, being supportive of this podcast. That's definitely meant a lot. It's been, um, a learning curve for me with my, you know, just a few weeks into it. So thanks for also being, you know, part of the first ones that we'll, we'll put out. Oh, I look forward to listening to it. All right. Take care. Bye. Have a nice day. Bye-bye. Pete is definitely just an amazing resource. Uh, I always recommend his books and everything that he has available. And he is a fellow donkey lover. And he has the the DVD set uh, Donkey Hooves that has been invaluable for me. I love that uh, DVD set and um, just really thankful that he's around and and helping all of us out. Um, Yeah. I've, you know, gone to probably, I try to go to a clinic a year with him. He's a fantastic resource for information. Right. So, and I just respect him totally as a person. He's just a, he's just a really nice person. Yeah. If you're interested in learning more from Pete, his website, hoofrehab.com, has tons of free articles that anyone can access. The store on the website also has DVDs and books for owners and hoof care professionals. I always say that I'm slightly more hoof obsessed than the average person, and chances are, if you're listening to a hoof care podcast, you are too. So we should probably be friends. Feel free to find me on Facebook or email me at thehumblehoof at gmail.com.